0: Welcome, this is Raven Debriefs, and I'm your host, Susan Smitten. Our guest today is pioneering human rights lawyer and trailblazer on the path to indigenous sovereignty, Dr. Judith Sayers. We spoke with Judith in late summer of 2020, just as her community was reeling from the violent murder of Chantal Moore at the hands of police. The police shooting of a 26-year-old Indigenous woman has raised all kinds of questions. The Edmundston police had been asked to do a wellness check on Chantelle Moore on Thursday. Her family, Indigenous leaders, and Canada's Indigenous Services Minister want to know why the officer who checked on her shot her and killed her.
1: The Nachalnith Tribal Council is calling for an immediate independent investigation. Edmonston police have handed the investigation off to Quebec's police watchdog. The shooting occurred just over a year after the release of the final report of the national inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Her death has drawn national attention at a time of increased scrutiny on the use of force by police in Canada and the U.S.
0: Sayers describes how, in her inimitable way, she moved from grief to action, convening an Indigenous justice summit in the wake of Chantal Moore's killing to bring people together to lobby for change.
2: What are the things we can do to ensure that there will never be another Indigenous person shot? I mean, I know that's a really lofty goal, but, um, you know, it's one that we need to talk about. We pulled together, we just pulled together a team of amazing individuals, professors, lawyers, anybody who had been involved in the justice system. It was awesome.
1: So the theme of the morning panel is the need for policing reform. This is a societal um, issue that sees Indigenous people as being backwards, criminal, and a threat to progress and development. And I I would suggest that police reform is but the tip of the proverbial iceberg.
2: You know, our people are not safe, they're not secure. And there is a fundamental violation of charter rights, not as well as as international rights. And we need to be having, framing that as a discussion to put pressure on the governments. This is not just a a matter of uh, budgets and if if they want to, if it's convenient. The evening was just to have the families talk about what happened what they're looking for. And and so this was not only Chantelle Moore, Francis Brady and Colton Bushy. You know, we had those families speak to us and the impact on their lives because of injustice in the system. And we tackled this question. And of course, well, the Indigenous Bar Association had gone through some of the uh, reports and we all agreed on 10 essential points that we would review in relation to this and so yeah I mean at one point you know we had over 1200 people listening in it just brought people in from all walks of life to talk about their experiences in the justice system so you know that's been that's been a good thing
1: For many Indigenous people in this country, the police are the gatekeepers for colonization. The colonial machine is often initiated by an engagement with police representatives. Oftentimes, these are innocuous uh, interactions between the police and Indigenous people that lead to uh, tragic events. I would like to remind that all of these engagements are carried out by institutions, which the, they themselves have acknowledged are, are uh performing and carrying out systemic racism.
0: We need to see Indigenous people having a greater role in the governance of Canadian police authorities. So roles on police boards, roles in oversight and accountability and public complaints. Like
2: those are all places that we could put far more Indigenous people. That is a form of self-determination if Indigenous people have a say and a choice in this. So that is, that is certainly
0: a
1: model.
2: I, th- I think as Canadians that live in this country need to be asking yourself, are police the right form of justice? Are they doing their job? You know, we hear a lot from the United States and within Canada to defund the police. And in the particular on wellness checks, why are we sending in the police anyway? They don't have the kind of training that we need, trauma-informed. If we had sent in a team of wellness workers, would it have made a difference in the case of, of Chantel?
0: I think we can say that a rule
1: of law that excludes the first people of Canada and excludes the first laws of this land is going to be fundamentally incomplete. And we need to... The answer in policing is to recognize and to re-empower Indigenous ways and to re-involve Indigenous peoples.
2: So we need to be having a discussion across this country as to what is the role of the police? I tried to get um, Minister Bill Blair, the public safety officer, to put in place a task force to look at wellness checks, you know, just one thing. And and he just says, oh, we're amending the Police Act. And I said, that's a really long process. Oh, well, we're going to address Indigenous policing. And those are all well and good. The minister needs to talk to the right people, the people that have been affected by this. You know, the billions and billions of dollars it takes to police in this country, is that the right use of the money? So it's a broad discussion that really needs to happen. I think people need to speak out against these injustices to Indigenous people. We can't be silent. This could happen to anyone.
0: For a look at the 10 calls to action that emerged from the Indigenous Justice Summit, visit raventrust.com slash calls (laughs) for justice. Mother and community leader from Hupachaseth Nation, Judith Sayers also sits as the president of the New Chalmers Tribal Council. We spoke with her just as she took up her position as the chancellor of Vancouver Island University about her life's path and her vision for a clean energy future led by Indigenous nations.
2: When I was 12, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer and just fascinated with the law and what it could mean. My maternal grandmother used to always tell me to always remember who I was and my values and my teachings, never give that up. But we need to be trained. We need to have that advantage to us. And my grandfather, um, who was the hereditary chief of Hoopichesset, became that because he could speak English and he could communicate. And so that was really important for me to see and to and to understand and so I was always motivated to get an education and be able to contribute so I went off to university and I almost didn't go back to law school but then I realized that that had always been my dream and I I did that as well.
0: Sayers began to practice law just as Canada was beginning to recognize and address the damage of colonial policies on indigenous peoples. She was part of the historic Constitution Express, a delegation of Indigenous people who traveled across the country to lobby to have Aboriginal rights enshrined in the Constitution.
2: There's just been these doors that open up to me in various parts of my life. So I went off after graduating from Moscow to Alberta and became involved in the big fight um, bringing the Constitution home. We lobbied hard to ensure that our rights were enshrined in the Constitution. I think we're one of the only countries that have a section that has constitutional protection.
0: Here's Dr. John Boros.
1: Canada's constitution has a section 35, which says the existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are hereby recognized and affirmed. Now, the challenge has been to discover what that actually means
2: you know we use section 35 to promote our rights to ensure our rights are carried out and we shouldn't have to go to court you know our rights to hunt fish trap gather should be automatic but in many cases we've had to go to court just to get the court to affirm uh, our section 35 rights it has given us a tool and i think having tools to fight against the government is always important because, you know, the government keeps on wanting to, you know, take more land, take all our resources, and, you know, what do we have left?
0: This is Raven Debriefs. If you like what you hear, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: So I was working with the Indian Association of Alberta, got really involved politically, but I had a really hard time finding articles to become a lawyer within British Columbia. You know, law firms would ask me, um, how radical am I on a scale of one to 10? <laughs> Do I want to get married? Do I want to date? Do I want to have, have t- children? Thank goodness that Willie Littlechild offered me articles out in Hobima. So I worked out there for about a year, year and a half. And the chief there was very instrumental in international work. And so he dragged me off to Geneva, to the Working Group on Indigenous People, the subcommission. And so it was at that point I got really involved in uh, international law, international work. So it was, you know, using international forms to promote the rights and the issues that we faced here in Canada. I ended up having two kids, no um, support from the father. And I decided to move home to Pearl Bernie, where my family was. You know, I, I got involved in the community you and know, the community here and decided I wanted to run for chief. And so I did that um, for 14 years, seven elections, and worked on a lot of economic development projects, from you know, the run of the river to tourism just different projects, um, really developed relationships with government, tried to put some basic documents in place like a consultation protocol, our land use plan, our CEDAR use plan. Um, It just really worked on those kinds of things. And then after 14 years and I lost the election, it was pretty it was pretty devastating. And so it was kind of a really weird time in my life because there were so many, you know, you get so involved in things. There's so many things you want to accomplish for your community and all of a sudden it's gone. All this burden is off your shoulders. And so that's when I started working with the University of Victoria. I got to be an assistant professor. So, you know, my life, had been been a doctor, a lawyer, an Indian chief, a professor, and the chancellor. And then the role of the president of the National Tribal Council came up. And I thought... It's time to get back to the Nachano, because I've you know, had so much. Um, I'm going to run, <laughs> not knowing what the result would be. But I'm in my almost finishing three years in this position, and just love working with the Nachano people and for our people, being the voice for our people, and uh, bringing attention back to the
0: I'm Susan Smitten, and you're listening to Raven Debriefs. The music you're hearing on this episode is by Kinney Starr.
2: Is it all right for me to feel?
0: head of Clean Energy BC. She started out by pioneering one of British Columbia's first ever run of river hydro projects in her home community of Port Alberni with the Hupachaseth First Nation.
2: Um, I never knew that when I got involved in Clean Energy I'd be so involved in such an industry and promoting and lobbying for that. So what happened with Hupachaseth here in Port Alberni is that there was a proposed generation project that would burn natural gas and they wanted to put it in the middle of town like it was amazing where they wanted to put it and we worked really hard to get that project stopped. I mean we've always had problems with air pollution here in Pearl and we knew that the ash, this fine ash that comes out of burning natural gas can land on plants and trees and stunt their growth as well as impair the health of people who have issues with their lungs. So we fought very hard in an environmental assessment. And at the end of it, there was some satisfaction that it went away because it went to Duke Point and they tried to build it there. And the people in that rose up and said no there as well. So that was always a, a nice thing because, you know, we helped them a lot with the material we had pulled together against that. But we thought, you know, we can always, you know, say not in my backyard. What are some solutions for producing energy that don't include creating greenhouse gases. And we started researching clean energy in our territory and we had an engineer going out and looking at some of our streams to be able to do a run of the river project. And so we chose China Creek in our language, Upneet, and started working on a project and we got to the point uh, where we applied to BC Hydro where we were really worried because we had a really small project at the time it was three and a half megawatts but then working with the engineers further we were able to get a project of 6.5 megawatts and so um, even then we were worried that BC Hydro wouldn't accept our project and we did a little bit of lobbying with the minister and saying hey you have to give us this opportunity small projects need to be taken in consideration not big ones And so we got an electricity purchase agreement uh, for our 6.5 megawatt project. So I ended up getting more and more involved in that industry, learning about it, becoming a lobbyist with other people who had projects. At the beginning, uh, a lot of the developers weren't working closely with First Nations and those days accommodation consultation accommodation really wasn't in place. So First Nations were being left out. They felt that there was a gold rush on licenses in their territories. And then they started consulting and getting involved in the industry. So, you know, run of the river was the main area to begin with. And then there was a few wind projects. And of course, now it's solar. This um amazing projects out there, Kanakabar has a big 50 megawatt project in their territory, the powerhouse is actually on the reserve. And and same with an Alert Bay, the First Nation there, the Quagu. I can tell you that the independent power producers in British Columbia, I think are the best industry I know that work with First Nations. It's it's taken time to get there, but they're the ones that will come to First Nations. And, you know, and there's all kinds of projects all over the province. Um, Chilcotin just finished a solar farm in their territory. I think it's been up and running for just over a year. You know, there's so many neat kinds of projects. There's geothermal. Gitsan have a really neat biomass project. And people got really involved in the clean energy industry, Then the um, NDP government decided to proceed with Site C.
0: The Site C dam, currently the subject of a Raven supported legal challenge by West Moberly First Nation, threatens to wipe out decades of progress towards clean energy in BC. Much of the power is destined for oil and fracking industries, while ecological impacts will wipe out farmland capable of feeding a million people. Because of Site C, the BC government ended programs that allowed producers like Cupicheseth Nation to sell renewably generated power back to the grid, effectively destroying the business model that had shaped the clean energy movement in BC.
2: British Columbia's focus on obtaining energy has always been on building big dams. Uh, one of the issues that we've had from the, the very beginning is that government like to say that our independent power is way more expensive than the power they get from dams. And the way they assess that is, I think, totally wrong, and many people agree with that. And how can you compare these large dams uh, with a small clean energy project? The big dams don't take into consideration compensation to First Nations. And the cost of Site C is skyrocketing. And it's going to be very expensive power when they finally finish it. It's been a a real battle. I don't know why the BC NDP are so opposed to independent power producers. When IPPs put together a project, Um, Financing comes from the banks, from the companies themselves. It doesn't cost the taxpayer anything. You know, we've spent billions of dollars and created thousands of jobs. And, you know, we were put in a situation where, hey, we can't do any more projects. And a lot of people spent millions of dollars developing and starting to develop, putting together everything to do a project. And All of a sudden, there's no opportunity to sell power to the grid. And of course, the governments didn't talk to any First Nations about that. Once they did that, First Nations started um, building projects in their community. And that's why you see all these projects in First Nations communities, whether it's a, a wind turbine, uh, solar, run of the river. And of course, you know, there are still 27 communities in British Columbia that are still on diesel and they've been working hard. I know Heshquit in the territories finally is getting off of diesel and they're doing a run of the river project and solar. So there's some amazing projects that you know have gone ahead because First Nations have fought hard to do that. So, I mean, if it ever opens again and we want to do a solar farm, we'll have that capacity. If we want to do more run of the river, we can do those things because we've got the expertise um, but as for economically, we, we don't.
0: The pioneering work of Sayers continues to provide a constitutional basis for many legal challenges our organization helps to fund, from the case that stopped the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline Project to Wes Moberly's current challenge against the Site C Dam.
2: One of the things that have been has been ingrained in me um, from all my growing up years is respect for Mother Earth, for the waters that run through her, for for the sky and everything that grows from Mother Earth, four-legged, winged ones. And I think uh, that kind of respect has really driven me in my career to be protecting Mother Earth, uh, to doing what I can in climate change, in the global warming issues we find ourselves in. It's an important um, role that we play in trying to stop some of these economic development projects that are going to destroy Mother Earth and with that our rights Uh, and so uh, that has become a large part of my career what can we do differently so i got got involved in clean energy why do we have to build big dams or burn natural gas there are other forms that are out there you know fighting smelters (laughs) um oil and gas development and you know that's just all part of who we are you know we have to be the warriors for the environment because the environment can't speak up for themselves It's been a step-by-step process it's been one where I've had to build my reputation and credibility to explore all the issues and I, I think a lot of my legal training has helped me to do that because all of a sudden you have to be an expert in something the other day I had to become an expert in what the cruise ships are dumping in the oceans <laughs> you know just things that you all of a sudden have to learn about really quickly and and that really um, means thinking on your feet. It means researching, it means reading, talking to the experts. And that's really been my philosophy is that you can't make changes without a good team around you. You can't do everything, you can't be everything, but making sure you have people who tr- you trust and people who can provide you the good advice. And in the end, you make the decision, but you, know, you have to have that base foundation sometimes from fighting some issue and i just be exhausted and you know i might have been you know angry and sometimes thinking about you know, I should just walk away from this should i just you know why don't i just find a job and be my law career and i go talk to several elders and they just said you can't quit you got to keep going this is too important And so also having those advisors around me really helped focus me you know when i was down or you know i'd come home from a big fight and i'd hug my kids and i'd realize that hey i'm doing this for my children not just my children but other children you know i never really plotted out in my life that i would be a chief that i would be the president that'd be a chancellor those opportunities came to me you know i appreciate the ability to be able to be part of the politics in this province and working with other First Nations chiefs and leaders and working together for the good of the First Nations and British Columbia and in many respects within Canada.
0: you heard voices from panelists at the Indigenous Justice Summit, including... Supreme Court Justice, Ardith Walcom, Mi'kmaqe Law Professor, Naomi Metallic, President of the Indigenous Bar Association, Scott Robertson, and of course, Dr. Judith Sayers, Officer of the Order of Canada and Chancellor of Vancouver Island University. You also heard from Raven's Legal Advisory Panel member and Anishinaabe lawyer, Dr. John Borrows. Music is from Mohawk hip-hop artist and Juno Award winner, Kinney Starr. The show was produced by Andrea Palferman, and I'm your host, Susan Smitten. Learn more about Raven and Champions of Indigenous Justice by subscribing to the Raven Debriefs podcast and visiting our website, raventrust.com. Thanks for lending us your ear.